Welcome to Interviews with Innocence, a podcast about spirituality, consciousness, and exploring the wisdom our children bring into this world. I believe that our very young children are our greatest teachers. After all, they're the masters of living in the present moment, bubbling in unconditional love, enjoying the messiness of life, and curious about the universe in all its dimensions. The pure essence that young children exhibit lives within all of us. My hope is that these interviews will help us discover, embrace, and connect with the sacred core of childhood that resides within each of our hearts. I am your host, Marla Hughes. Today, I am like super excited to have Raymond Moody and Lisa Smart on the program. I'm going to read their short bios, but their media kits will be listed listed in the show notes because they there's a lot to be said about both of them and all of their unbelievable work. Raymond, Dr. Raymond Moody, PhD, MD, is a world-renowned scholar, lecturer, and researcher, and is widely recognized as the leading authority on near-death experiences, as he coined the term NDE. He's the best-selling author of many books, including Life After Life, Glimpses of Eternity, The Light Beyond, and Coming Back. Dr. Moody's work profoundly illuminates our understanding of death, dying, and grief, and offers compelling answers to the question, is there an afterlife? Lisa Smart, MA, is a linguist, book coach, and writer. She is the author of Words at the Threshold, What We Say When We're Nearing Death. The book is based on data collected through the Final Words Project, an ongoing study devoted to gathering and interpreting the mysterious language at the end of life. She has worked closely with Raymond Moody, guided by his research into language, particularly unintelligible speech. They have co-facilitated presentations about language and consciousness at universities, hospices, and conferences. Lisa has also written Cante Bardo, Veil, Diet for a Broken Heart, and Lessons in Lullabies. Welcome to the program, both of you. Hello, hello. Yeah, yeah thank you for having us. You're welcome. It, it's so yeah. exciting to have you. And we were just talking a few minutes before about how I met Raymond and Lisa. Somehow I ended up on an airplane flying to Athens and um, and met them. And I don't know, some sort of magic just sort, sort of happened. And I was just thanking them so much for really, I feel such a big, they were a big part of helping me to do the work that I'm doing now. So, so anyway, let's talk about both of you. So the two of you are both so incredibly powerful together and um, apart, but it's just a really unique relationship. So can you tell us about how you began this partnership and this this friendship? Raymond, do you wanna go first? Oh, well, I am. One thing I guess that even though I put it at the very beginning of my book, Life After Life, I guess people never kind of picked up on was that the um, context and background that I brought to my interest in study of near-death experiences was that of logic and philosophy of language and Greek philosophy. And um, the reason I got interested in the afterlife question is that it is a question that many people have said is unintelligible, like the notion of an afterlife doesn't, if you think about it, what are you talking about? Seems like a self-contradiction, right? So um, I had been interested literally since childhood in unintelligibility. I was uh, interested in astronomy and the the things that just don't make sense. Like when you ask the question, how big is it? You, You know, either answer you can give. Is nonsensical. So, um, and and at the same time, I was reading Dr. Seuss and Lewis Carroll. So I have always thought nonsense was a great thing, and uh, that was probably part of the reason I majored in philosophy because the 
concept of nonsense is a very important concept in, in uh, modern philosophy. So that's what I've studied. And um, it's a long reason to tell why, but the, you know, this applies directly to questions about life after death and near death experiences. So that was my point of entree. So I was, uh, and in that process, and everybody in medicine knows that sick patients talk nonsense, right? People who are delirious talk a certain kind of nonsense. People who are psychotic another time, uh, even though uninjured, stressed, will talk nonsense and um, or intoxicated with mercury or various things. And um, so like, I guess probably everybody in medicine, I had no, you know, that probably most of the people listening to this, I had just noticed that um, in the last few days or hours or weeks of life, that people will lapse into talking nonsense. And uh, I, I recognize that uh, when people talk nonsense involuntarily, like from delirium or because they're in a terminal state, that the types of nonsense they talk are the same types of nonsense that Dr. Seuss and Shel Silverstein, Lewis Carroll uh, created deliberately. So my discovery was nonsense is nonsense, whether it's deliberate or involuntary. And I've studied this literally all my life. It's uh, I'm not trying to sell a book, but I, I am very proud of my book on this making sense of nonsense, yes. which I I taught courses in uh, several universities on to to literary scholars and psychology students and so on about the nonsense. And so I was talking about this uh, some years back at a conference, and then um, Lisa came forward, and we just struck up a friendship immediately. She was talking about how, as she will mention to you, that her she heard that strange language that her father was talking. It was just a few weeks before she came to the seminar where I had mentioned. So that's how we got started on this research. Interesting. And to let my listeners know, um, I Raymond and I did do an interview on his book, Making a Sense of Nonsense. So I, I really encourage you to go back and listen to it and, and read the book because it's it's just fascinating. So Lisa, would you like to chime in on? Yeah, I just want to say two things that's synchronistic is that my father died 10 years ago, February. Um, you know, he died in 2012. So it must have been just months later that I met Raymond. So Raymond, we've known each other a decade, which is wow. really remarkable. <laughs> Since both of us are so incredibly young, it's so... <laughs> no, but... um. Yeah, I, I think the thing that, uh, I mean, when I heard Raymond Moody speak, and of course it's just been, it was an honor to be in a, in a room with him with only 12 other students and a greater honor to, to know and work with him in the last 10 years. But what really drew my attention is when he talked about nonsense as part of human experience and language, because I was raised, um, you know, I mean, I was trained as a linguist and the good part about linguistics is it's not prescriptive, it's descriptive of how language behaves. And, but I'd never really heard anybody talk about nonsense being such an integral part of being a social animal who produces language, right? And so I, I just, when Raymond mentioned that, I was really intrigued that maybe the kinds of things that we hear in the threshold that so many people for so many years and still do actually just dismiss his nonsense or just being the med speaking. And even, even if it is the med speaking, what's so interesting is that certain types of nonsense appear. Why do the same types appear? And now that my mother is also dying um, 10 years later, I noticed just what Raymond had mentioned, and I see it firsthand now, is that the, the language of delirium is different than, the nonsense of delirium is different than the nonsense of language at the threshold. They're two very different, right. they have different patterns and behaviors. So 
once again, the Maya, the maestro, <laughs> my mentor and friend was, was absolutely spot on about, about that, I believe. Interesting. So Lisa, can you give us a few examples of um, what people say, you know, at the threshold? Well, some of the classic stuff that was has also been documented in the wonderful book, Final Gifts by Maggie Callahan and Patricia Kelly, um, you know, are these metaphors of travel. People say, yes. you know, um, get me my passport or the car is coming or the, you know, I just missed the train and so forth. And also people oftentimes will use metaphors related to kind of their life passions. So someone might talk about there's a foursome waiting, you know, a golfer might talk about there's a, a trio of golfers and they need a fourth and they, you know, the foursome, you know, they're waiting for him or her to join, um, join the team or join the, the, the foursome of um, threesome of golfers to make a foursome. Yes, yes. Um, you hear people use uh, metaphors uh, in terms of travel, in terms of going to the other side and, and, or for example, Jeffrey Holder, who was a choreographer and dancer, the very last things he said as he was dying had to do with dance. One, two, three, four, right. one, two, three, down. So, and then you may hear just someone say the scrambled eggs are on the rooftop. And, you know, you think, what the, <laughs> you can't, you know, you don't just hear metaphors, but you'll hear something that's, so you hear all kinds of language, um, but those are just some of them, but it becomes more metaphoric and more and more nonsensical, almost like you are reading Dr. Seuss or Shel Silver Silverstein. Right. My mom kept talking about getting on the bus mm -hmm. and she'd say, no, I'm not quite ready. And then the, the day before that evening she passed, she said, I think I'm ready to get on that bus. So Lisa, do you think, or either one of you, do you think that not only are they speaking, these are the words, but they're actually visioning, visioning the other side? Have, has that ever been, I mean, I don't know how you could prove that, but what do, you, what do you think? Because we hear about deceased loved ones coming to greet them and to bring them over and glimpses of Steve Jobs saying, wow. And I'm wondering if, like that gentleman with the golf, if he if he's seeing possibly a golf course, or I I don't know what what do you what do you think about that? I'll I'll ask that briefly, and then I'd love to hear Raymond's response yeah. too. But there was one person whose father was a contractor, and mostly specialized in kitchens and bathrooms, <laughs> and he. <laughs> Said to her at one point, oh my God, there's, you know, miles and miles of, of bathrooms and kitchens that need to be yeah. remodeled. There's so much to be remodeled. <laughs> and she said that it really was as if he could see just so right. that that seemed very real to him. So that's my thought. I would, I'm curious what Raymond has to say too. Well, I've wondered about that a lot because, um, I, I, there's a very strong connection between uh, um, transcendental experiences and uh, ineffability, for example. Yes. People will say, no matter how eloquent they are, that they just can't describe it. And um, sometimes nonsense is the best expression we have to uh, to denote some kind of extraordinary thing. I mean, uh, you think about all the, uh, how very often a new discovery has to be expressed as an oxymoron. Um, I'm, it's like I'm, there's this great book on um, mirages mm -hmm. that is called The Waterless Sea. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking of mirages I've seen, and that's correct. So the way I put it together is that people on the verge of death are trying to formulate in words things, you know, realms of experience that are just impossible for us to 
comprehend and to put into words is kind of the, and I base that more on when I was in medical school to my great good fortune, my, my medical school professors always would assign the terminally ill patients to me because I had the, you know, everybody knew about my work with near-death experiences. So in that, that day, you know, people didn't want to talk about death and stuff. That was in the mid-70s. And so, you know, from the beginning of my medical career, I was with a lot of terminally ill patients and watching some pretty extraordinary things unfold. And, um, you know, my impression definitely was that this nonsense that was coming out of the patients was they were trying to um, put into words experiences that they were having. And and I heard, a thing I heard repeatedly, actually, I just from an old friend of mine, actually, who was a professor of religious studies out in Utah. Her, her husband had been a philosophy professor, and I'd gotten to know them once in the 1970s. And then years later, when I went out there to lecture, she was telling me, about, I mentioned this in my lecture, and she came up afterward, and she said that her husband had died. And she said uh, that in the last few weeks of his life, he was talking nonsense. And she said, I knew it was nonsense. And she said, yet somehow in the back of my mind, it kind of registered. And I've, I've heard that kind of same, you know, the same thing repeatedly. So um, I think as people are struggling to you know, make sense out of, like, yeah. you know, I think about what my dad said to me that is technically nonsense. He said, oh, Lisa, there's so much so in sorrow. And technically that's nonsense, right? There's so much so in sorrow. And yet, of course, I knew immediately what he was saying is that this is a very sad moment. This is so sorrowful moment. But technically it was nonsense. So, you know, as Raymond said, there's a way, you know, it's like poetry touches us and poetry yes. is not always literal and linear language. And I believe that we are not just literal animals and critters, <laughs> you know, that we respond to language that is not literal and um, an experience and expression that is not literal. So absolutely. So to segue a little bit, um, so you have this beautiful new website. I I just love it, lifeafterlife.com. And Raymond, I I always have to ask you, and I apologize because I well, I don't apologize, but you're you're asked this so many times. One of the quotes on the front page is when I began my research into near-death experiences in 1968, I was a skeptic and an atheist. Now I am neither. What convinced me after 50 years of investigating near-death experiences? So I know you wrote a whole book on that, but, yeah. uh, but I'd love for you to talk about that. And I don't know it partly was um, your, your shared death experience and learning about shared death experiences. Yeah, and it's also, I mean, that word skeptic, I am skeptic still. Yes, uh, yes. Marla, by the real meaning of it, you know, I was a ancient Greek philosophy is one of my main subjects of interest. And um, the skeptics were beginning with Pyrrho, who was kind of my hero after Aristotle. Um, said, well, let's look at things vigorously, but then withhold a conclusion. So I, um, you know, that was the frame of skepticism from which I came into it and still have that attitude to the point where I, I can honestly say on logical grounds, it is not quite possible in 2022 to draw a logical inference that there's life after death. Although it's, it's right now in, in the place where it could happen, I think. Uh, and what happened to me was I just gave up. 
Yeah, I just, I don't know what else to say. I never swallowed that thing about oxygen deprivation to the brain because one of my own medical school professors, like it's a very wonderful woman who was a psychiatry professor. My first year in medical school told me about uh, an event in which she was trying unsuccessfully to resuscitate her mother. And in that time, her, she herself had what we call now near-death experiences. She felt herself lift out of her body. She saw the scene from above. She saw her mother there now in spirit form was her words. And she um, saw her uh, people who, some of whom she recognized, obviously friends and relatives of, of her mother's who had died, some of whom she recognized emerging from this light to meet with her mother and saw her mother receding into this and came back to her own body then. I mean, you know, and I, I just hear this kind of thing all the time. I, you know, the oxygen deprivation to the brain thing, that is something people resort to when they are just so fearful of saying, I don't know. Whereas to me, I say, I don't know. And, and like with God, I just, I was not, God never entered my mind. I suppose you could say I was, I, I, I just didn't think about God. And the reason that has changed is it's not religion. I'm not religious. And, uh, you know, living in the deep South, I'm afraid of snakes and eat. And so, um, you know, I'm not a church type or religious type, but I would say that, you know, I had direct experience of, you know, personal relationship with God that sort of gradually emerged through this thousands of people I've talked with who had near-death experiences. And kind of like in 1991, I think it was a... Uh, uh, yeah, just the presence of God. I was in the presence of God. It was, uh, and, and so, but I am not, you know, I think that religion is, as far as I can tell, it's, it's a way that some people have of retreating from God or not getting too close to God. It's like to put a religion between them and God. It's, Whereas to me, it's just a personal relationship. I like to say I talk to God every day and God has never said a word to me about religion. Yes. I figure that he brings something to my attention, but there hasn't been any of that. But there's been a lot of other very interesting stuff. Yeah. And hence your book. God is bigger than the Bible. God is bigger than the yes, Bible. Yes, which we so, did an interview also. Yeah, yeah. Yes. I really enjoyed it. Lisa helped so much. Yeah. Putting that book together, it was kind of, it was about a 10-year project, actually. Lisa, did you, what have kind of been your aha moments when you've realized that mm or if you realize, I'm assuming you have, that this is, that there is most likely an afterlife. And it's like, wow, this is, this is really, really true. That's a good, actually, that's a good question. Because um, to be honest with you, I don't know if I could say that there's an afterlife, but I could say that consciousness seems to, definitely is non-local. Mm -hmm. And that for me, yeah, I still don't know that I could say that there's a place called the afterlife <laughs> or, you know, but what I could say is that it does seem that consciousness survives in some way. So in unexpected ways, so the aha moments for me, well, of course, were all the conversations I had with Raymond and learning about near-death experiences in more depth and, ex and the shared death experience. Yes. How, you know, how is that possible that someone who's not dying can have such a very real experience of the death process or the dying process or, you know, share in um, their loved ones dying. So that was very compelling to me also. And I, I think hearing, um, 
It's really, I'm really glad you asked me a really good question. The, the things that really, the research that completely blew my socks off was Ken Ring's work with the blind who had near-death experiences. So people who were born blind and then had near-death experiences and were out of their body could, could see themselves. It's not exactly the kind of seeing we had, we have, but it, he calls it transcendental awareness. So that was very compelling to me that people never born with sight or very limited sight during their NDEs were able to perceive it at a different level and way than they could when they were in their body. So then it's like, well, wow, what's, what is that transcendental awareness? Mm -hmm. Terminal lucidity, um, there were many cases of that, not many, but uh, maybe 7% of the people in the sample from the Final Words Project had these very um, striking terminal lucidity story. So for example, the most dramatic was someone I actually worked with and his mother had Alzheimer's. Um, you know, they had not had a, a really lucid conversation in years. And then she went into a coma. So, I mean, this is someone whose language was completely, you know, basically there was no sense of intelligibility. I mean, there, he had no kind of communication with her. But then right before she died, she came up she looked at him and said, John, all my financial files are in my office in the bottom drawer on the left side. She came back to say this piece of very lucid right. information that turned to be completely spot on. And you have to wonder who was that that came back? How was it that came back? So I think, again, I'm not too sure about an afterlife. I wish I could just say, yeah, I know I'm going to the place it's heaven and there are going to be angels. And you know, I wish I could say that. Uh, but I do know that somehow something continues. And that, that's, that's more what I'm convinced of at this point. Right. Yeah. Beautiful. So, Remy, can you just talk briefly about your experience when with Jeff Olson and Jeffrey Olson, Dr. Jeff O'Driscoll, and the explaining what a shared death experience is? And I know you personally had one with your with your mother. With my mother, I did. I was kind of in the midst of putting together a program with a lot of psychologists and so on to study this. And incredibly, just in that little period of time, my, my mother suddenly developed an illness and died, and we were there with her. And yeah, I did. I did have that. And that I have, uh, over the years, I just heard many people with this. Um, and it's um i think it's a really fascinating thing we need to probe into this more because um you know people have a natural kind of inbuilt way of thinking about near-death experiences and it enables them to have a little distance mm -hmm. because in the mind the near-death experience is something that happens to someone else right unless you've had one or something whereas shared death experiences as i have noticed over the years are a little more troubling to people because i think what it is is that they can imagine that they might be in that situation so it's it's something people want to resist plus they have no easily available argumentative context to put it into, right? The context for the near-death experience is pre-existing. Is it the afterlife or is it something internal, like from the um, oxygen deprivation to the brain or whatever? Whereas this is more troubling to people and it's, there's no easily apparent way of uh, of talking about it because apparently from the point of view of the bystanders at the death of someone else it's kind of like they get a little glimpse into the other side the, the whatever they are the veils or whatever just drop for that moment yes. and people can kind of realize you know that there's this other thing going on uh, around us that we um, 
right. And so, I mean, I, I mean, it is, it is, um, it's very troubling. I noticed to the that there's a sort of the the study of the paranormal is really. I'm sorry to say, it's a hobby more than anything else. It's you know the people, the practitioners. It's mostly their hobby, and uh, the parapsychological wing is one wing, and then the other wing is the so-called skeptical wing. Uh, and both sides have the same assumptions, right? Which is that they are dealing with a literal mode of discourse, and that. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the so-called skeptics, when you talk to them, they were they were former believers, right? Or, and then when you go to the believers meeting, sometimes you find the the former disbelievers. Oh, I used to be over this, but it's it's really the same mentality, except the pseudo skeptics, as I call them, it's more of an adolescent mentality. Um, it's very much so, and I'm not. That's not a criticism because. I myself have hardly emerged from the infantile state myself, so I'm not criticizing. That. So, Raymond, could you could you give it just an example of a shared death experience, whether it's your own or one that you've heard? So, in case people don't know exactly what you're talking about, yeah, yeah, that very often at the bedside of the death of someone else, the bystanders themselves will have all of these features that we associate with near-death experiences. People will very commonly say that they, at the moment of the death of their loved one, they see something indescribable leave the body, which they often describe as a kind of golden or grayish um, structure almost that I've heard a doctor tell me he saw it go through the ceiling. I mean, people... Or people say that um, as their loved one is in the, the process of dying, that they themselves may leave their physical bodies and accompany their dying loved one partway toward this light. Um, or people may, the bystanders may say they see the apparitions of the, what are apparently the dying persons. Uh, deceased loved ones and friends coming into the room as though to take them away. Uh, people say the light fills, the room fills with this light. Um, quite a few people talk about how the whole geometry of the room changes, that they no longer feel like they are in a three-dimensional state, but in some other kind of uh, environment that has an energy to it rather than a geometry. I mean, people say they they began to realize that they're seeing things in the room from an impossible angle, things things like that. And most remarkably to me, just I got a lot of cases where the bystanders have empathically co-lived the dying life review of the person who passes away at first uh, it just happened the first number of cases i heard of this over the years were they they had a particularly close relationship to the person so i assumed that surely you have to be very close to but no i I've subsequently I, I mean a doctor for example a few years ago told us about uh, being called to the ER to resuscitate a patient he had never even laid eyes on. As this man was dying, he said this, the images like the whole life of this man appeared around him. Or a woman who uh, had been this, this one of these long-term marriages. I don't think they even had any kids, as I recall, just of decades and decades, which went back to a, literally a childhood friendship. And was telling me about, uh, you know, as her husband was dying, that she was seeing his life in review just like he was. And, you know, the song, they were talking about the same things they were seeing. So, you know, I mean, it's a very hard thing to put together, but it's part of, as I gathered, the collective cultural heritage of humankind that on the verge of death 
it's as though um, there's a what um, sort of opening into elsewhere. Yeah. The interesting thing is too, from the research I've read, and I, I hope to have Jeffrey Long on the on the program to talk about his all of his research in this, but it it's more real than real and it changes people's lives. Even the shared death experience is not just this dream that then they, they forget about, but it's, it's so. You asked me a moment ago about what sort of shifted my ideas about this. And um, I have two things I wanted to share, discuss a shared death experience I had while my father was dying 10 years ago, that really was part of um, shifting my ideas about consciousness. And also I have to, I have to put in a plug, um, William, <laughs> William Peters, who has done extensive research. That's and, why I met William Peters. Who did yeah, I say? Um, I, I think I said Jeffrey. Jeffrey Long. Jeffrey Long okay, also, I meant, okay, okay. Yeah. Jeffrey Long's great too, but that's right. who I was referring to. Thank you. So William Peters and Raymond will be doing a free webinar together. Yes. And I believe it's going to be March 12th. And um, so if people want to come to lifeafterlife.com, and either opt in or just send us an, a little hello in the contact section. We will send them all the information about the free webinar if they Great. want to know about shared death. And William did very extensive research using um, Raymond's categories um, about shared death experiences. So it's a really fascinating area. And I was fortunate enough to actually have one of them while my father was dying. And at the time, I didn't know it was what it was called until I met Dr. Moody, of course. But I was, um, I was living in Napa and my father was in Berkeley and he was very close to dying. And in the middle of the night, one night, maybe a couple of weeks before he passed on, I felt like there were a lot of people in the room with me. Uh, you know, that feeling, you can just feel the presence. And, um, and I, I just couldn't sleep. And my husband just kept saying, go back to sleep. And I said, no, there's something, this is weird. I just feel all these people, like the room is just filled with people. And so the next day I went to go visit my dad as I did every day. And I asked my mom, um, how's dad? And she said, you know, the, oh, and oh, I forgot this part. I looked at the clock and so it was 3.15 in the morning. So I said, so how's dad? She said, what was the weirdest thing? He woke up about 3.15 in the morning. And he said, will you tell all these damn people to get out of here? It's so crowded. There are so many people in this room with me. But David Kessler in his book talks about how it's very common that people have this experience of a crowded room, just as Raymond was talking about the visitation, you know, the deceased relatives and who else, you know, whatever beings are filling the room. But I felt them at the time that my father was complaining. <laughs> right. The room. So that was a type of shared death experience, right? And that was another, once I talked to Raymond and learned about it and made the connection about, you know, wow, this, this is consciousness. This is non-local consciousness. Yes. It exists. <laughs> we yeah. are more than just this body. Yes. So anyway, I had to say those, those two things. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing. Yes, it's William Peters and I hope to have you, Raymond, again on the show with William <laughs> one day soon to talk about that too. So let's let's move forward a little bit and talk about. I know that you've been involved in this in this area probably seems like forever, Raymond and Lisa. You have for at least the last decade or so. How has it changed your life, or how do you walk in this life? differently just knowing what you know or from everything that you've learned about studying the continuity of consciousness and the afterlife and all of those important things who wants to start raven what about you <laughs> well i a very big date in my life was my first semester at the University of Virginia. The first couple of days I started reading Plato's Republic and later that same semester we read Plato's Phaedo, which is his dialogue about the afterlife, which in reality sets the whole picture of in Western rational inquiry into the afterlife. The Christians, they predicated their 
theology of the afterlife, for example, on, uh, on Plato's Phaedo. And I remember I was 18 years old and I remembered the moment I read this, it's like Plato in that dialogue said, philosophy is a rehearsal for dying. And that had such immediately, I said, yes. And now I have, that has been with me ever since I was 18 years old. And I, uh, now at age 77, I marvel that an 18 year old would have had that reaction to it. Yes. But it, that was my reaction. Maybe because I was raised by older people who, elderly people actually who often talked about dying and so on but i um that was a big impact on me and it happened so early i don't know what how to separate it right it's like uh it's just, i've just kind of i have never really grown up but insofar as i have grown up it's been with near-death experiences so um Sorry. And it was only in the last five or six years that I, I gave up. Like I said, yeah, this is, I never thought the, the oxygen, that, that was ridiculous, yeah. but the, I didn't know what it was. And I still don't, um, you know, there's a lot I don't know, but I'm, I'm confident yeah, now that this, to my remaining utter astonishment, I, it's still very counterintuitive to me. I mean, I have all sorts of questions. It's like, what about spiders or seahorses or whales or zebras? Do they have an afterlife? <laughs> you know, and, and you look at the world's views of the afterlife. There's different kinds of, like I know that in the, the certain place in Melanesia where um, the token you have to have to get into the afterlife is to have a certain tattoo. You see? And, you know, you could count like a million different views. Yes, yes. The Who's dark afterlife? Whose afterlife are we looking at? Are we talking about? Well, what about in terms of, of changing, um, or not changing, the things you brought into your life? Uh, I love when you talk about the power of prayer. And I know you pray a lot, so. I do. Yeah. Uh, well, I am. I tend to take this world very seriously because mm -hmm. I respond to it with panic and stuff. And at the same time, another layer of me doesn't take this very seriously. I mean, I just to me, this is a. I've kind of figured out a long time ago that this thing we're in is a kind of theater. And we live out these stories. And then I gather we go through some incomprehensible process. And then we're back on, a, on another storyline. And um, so I can pretty much maintain that perspective now constantly of this being a play. But at the same time, things hurt and you get you they, that immerses you right into it again and um so i'm just still like i was at seven or eight years old still i just love learning new things yes and uh, and we all know george ritchie has told us all about the hall of hall of knowledge that's right. I remember George saying one time to me that he saw into this place of learning that he glimpsed into. He said that you could compare it to a library, like one section of it. And he said one section of this part of it that you could compare to a library, he said, contained the holy books of the universe. And... Uh, so, you know, I'm very con content to say I don't know much at all, but I do enjoy, I do enjoy learning what I can. Yes. 
Yes. Well, you yeah. have to know a lot to know that you don't know. You know what yes. I mean? Yes. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. And these these are these are big questions. Big, <laughs> the biggest. So, Lisa, you, I've watched you move from Athens to Asheville, North Carolina, right? Yes. South Carolina. Yeah, North Carolina. Yes. And I know you love to dance and your energy is just so beautiful. And I can feel that that kindness and compassion coming from you. And I feel as if maybe, maybe things, how do I want to say this? doing this work has not that you were not kind before but doing this work how has it how has it changed you in the way you live how you walk in your life that's um oh in so many ways I don't even know where to begin it, it definitely gives me this sense you know the way I when I hear people talk about consciousness in in my very limited mind it the, the image I keep getting is like a web you know, that there's, mm. and, and, and as I've done this work, the web has expanded yeah. so that I feel less alone. And there's a sense that there's all of this around me. And at this point, I may not be able to see it, but my, but what my sense is that when we, it's like crossing to another dimension, so, or something, but there's this web. So I do feel much more supported in life. And I was just thinking as Raymond and I were talking right now and speaking and I'm, you know, um, I was so terrified. I, Raymond probably wouldn't, I mean, can probably remember, but I was so terrified to speak out about what I thought or stand up and communicate. I mean, there's a sense of um, comfort I've gained in myself by doing this work and feeling more and more trusting. And I do believe much more deeply in source or something that holds me in a way, you know, because I've gone, I've had a really rocky, you know, kind of a tough three years. A lot of unexpected things happen, um, as we all do in, in the course of a lifetime. And yet I feel like I'm much more resilient because there's this real sense that there's always this web. And, you know, hearing the stories from ND years, um, especially, um, it's really hard, you know, you hear about this being of light and it's very, I mean, I'm convinced some kind of, and I can feel the light. And I actually had a very direct experience of it myself when I was younger, um, which I, 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 I'm not going to talk about today, but I'm going to start talking about more in, in the future. But um, so all these things, and I think also just Raymond, working with Raymond, my mind, it's, it's been a spiritual process. It's also been a mental process. I mean, I've grown so much as a thinker about, about yeah, just, um, well, to begin with language, because that was what I was trained in as a linguist. So my whole, my ideas of language have been so profoundly expanded to, to first to think of nonsense as not being taboo, but also I do, I interviewed a lot of psychics for, um, my book and this research and it's been fascinating to me that there's this whole kind of language that psychics work with that is very symbolic and yes many psychics describe having their own lexicography so you know for one psychic they may the person may see an apple and it symbolizes your a mother and someone else may see an apple and it represents evil you know or something so it's really uh, fascinating so i think the other thing that's happened to me is my idea of language has just expanded radically of what is language and I, i'll never forget another very compelling moment for me was when i read evan alexander's um i think it was proof of heaven um, but he talked about non-linguistic communication right and like that seemed at first like a paradoxical statement non-linguistic yes. <laughs> communication so i think you know um partly you know, working with raymond and getting to know him these categories of how you know, paradoxical language, like, uh, you know, non-linguistic communication. <laughs> right, right. And there's this whole realm of paradoxical language that belongs to another realm, you know, the, another world or another sphere mm -hmm. and, you know, uh, specifically the afterlife, but other things as well. So, um, so on a spiritual level, I feel much more at home in my body and in, I feel safer I do believe in um, a, some kind of God in a way, in a deeper way than I ever have. 
and um, I've learned so much. I, I just, you know, and I was one of these people thought you could only learn in academic settings. Right. And you can learn a lot there, but if you find a wonderful mentor <laughs> and friend, a lot of doors open. <laughs> Absolutely. I've been very grateful about all the things that, um, that I've learned through Raymond and through the people I've met from Raymond. Thank you. That's beautiful. We need to start wrapping it up, but I just wanted to um, ask what, what words of wisdom would you like to to give to the audience or have I asked you everything that you wanted to, wanted to talk about today? Lisa? Um, A few words of wisdom. One is that if there's something that really makes you curious, you know, my father was dying and I noticed some very bizarre things with his language. And a lot of us say, um, well, doesn't mean anything that I'm curious, like you know, we discount it. But I really encourage people to cultivate and embrace your curiosity. My whole life changed because I became curious about final words and it took me on a path that is without a doubt one of the most amazing paths of my life. Mm-hmm. So I say to all of you, if you have a question, don't run away from it, embrace it, write about it, talk about it, listen to podcasts about it. But I would say today is really trust and embrace your curiosity. Yeah, that's my word. My words of wisdom for today. And Raymond, what about you? Well, you know, I'm kind of thinking about this is a tough time for people, this pandemic. And, um, I'm I'm kind of glad there's so much information now with all these near-death experiences. I I hear that the latest number of Americans who died from COVID is now approaching a million people. That's about what one out of every 330 of us. Oh my God! And so uh, wow. you know, this is a good a good time, I guess, for a lot of people to reflect on the transients of life and what death means yes so so true well thank you so much for coming on the show today it's truly been an honor and if people want to find you um how would they how would they do that come to lifeafterlife.com and there's also a free excerpt of raymond's god is bigger than the bible on the website um, and feel free to you know, write anything you like in the contact section if you have questions. And yeah, that's the best way. Well, thank you so much. And I'm sure I'll be talking to both of you soon and have, have a great rest of the day. Yeah, you too. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening in today. If you want to learn more about the show, you can find us at interviewswithinnocence.com and on Facebook or Instagram at Interviews with Innocence. Please write me a message. Tell me what you liked and let me know what else you would like to hear. I would love to hear from you. And if you liked what you heard, please leave us an iTunes rating and review. It helps other listeners find the show. Thank you. Thank you.